0: What's up, guys? Welcome back to Clear the Cash. I'm your host, Nate List. You can find me on Twitter at an outraged Jew. And with me, of course, is Mr. Jesse Bach. You can find him on Twitter at planet underscore fatness. Jesse, another gap in recording. Uh, I heard it from everybody. They let me know. They're like, where's Clear the Cash? I said, look, guys, it's coming back. It's coming back better than ever. We've got actual football going on right now. But it would be uh, a mistake on our behalf if we didn't acknowledge the elephant in the room, which is comments made by Michael Rubin recently. The CEO of Fanatics went on CNBC, and he had something to say.
1: So Michael Rubin, um, as you guys might know, is the CEO of Fanatics um, and a very large investor into a, a CSG grading company. Um he went on CNBC. I think it was like some midday show. I don't really watch CNBC or like Fox business or whatever. Um, uh, but it was some some uh midday show um, probably in, in within the last week or two. and you know it was a very very quick hitting interview and it was strictly they they were talking strictly about, the vision that fanatics has for the sports card industry and ever ever since they bought the licenses and, you know, even, even the host of the show said, listen, Michael, you cut tops at the knees, tops of bit and and business cards have been like this for like, you know, since the fifties. So you guys, you guys aren't messing around there. So he, he kind of wanted to go into his thought process and, and what he was seeing and, and what, what he's thinking for the card industry moving forward. So Um, you know, some of this is a direct quote and, and some, some I'll just kind of paraphrase and give, give some of my own analyses. Um, so Michael Rubin goes on to say the collector experience is pretty brutal today. You need to buy primary cards with so many people in the middle of it. You buy your primary cards, then you sell your secondary cards somewhere else. You get them graded with another party. You need to store them somewhere else. If not your house. First of all, Nate, um, what's a primary card and what's a secondary card? What the fuck are that? <laughs> I was
0: just gonna ask you this. I don't know what a primary or a secondary card is. But he's saying it like it's, it's common knowledge.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is that's like strike one. Um, or maybe like maybe strike two after maybe his first sentence, where I I understand what he's trying to say. He's saying like cards in the primary market. So primary market is as if you're buying you're buying the, the card from the manufacturer themselves. So let's say you go on Panini and buy like a redemption pack or something or, or a redemption or whatever, a card directly from Panini. And the secondary market is a card being um, like a, a pack or a box or an individual card, whatever, being sold from Panini to a card shop or to a dealer, and then that dealer or card shop sells that card to you. So I, I get what he's saying, but... I've never heard the, use, the the term primary card or secondary card ever used in the hobby. Okay. Um, then he goes on to say a direct-to-consumer direct model would improve the collector's experience. And then he also goes on to explain, uh, or to compare what Fanatics does with merchandising is how collectors can expect Fanatics to handle cards. And he uses the direct-to-consumer phrase about like three to four more times in the, in the interview. Um, not only have they cut off tops and potentially panini at the knees, but they're looking to do the same with card shops, breakers, and other resellers and distributors. Um, some of my thoughts on on what was said. That's kind of, like, you guys can look up this. If you type in Michael, Michael Rubin Fanatic CNBC on YouTube, it's probably going to be within the first two or three videos you see on there. Um, if you guys want to listen to it yourself. But that's basically the gist of the interview. So I don't disagree with him when he says that, inefficiencies exist within the card market and how um individual like buyers and hobbyists are able to acquire product themselves um especially like modern day product from panini and tops um but it sounds like what he's saying in these comments is what investors want to hear so this is like this is money for like to their ears or this is this is like music to their ears whatever money music whatever Um, to fanatics investors ears when he's saying stuff like "Oh, we're going to revolutionize this we're going to make you know direct to consumer market we're going to make stuff so readily so readily available to the consumer it's not even funny Um, but it doesn't sound very uh, uh, not consumer friendly very collector friendly um, when he's calling the Uh, hobby experience pretty brutal today like does this guy not realize that we're probably in the biggest sports card boom of all time it might not be the biggest ever but it's the biggest we've ever seen in the history of cards and cards have been around since the 1800s um i i don't think he sounds super educated in the hobby i think he realizes that there is money to be made even with the amount of money that has been spent over the last couple of years and in this boom market and this 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 bull market altogether. Um, I think from a financial standpoint, he knows what he's doing, but maybe from like a hobby perspective and what exactly collectors want to hear and what they actually want to see and what they want to see happen in the hobby. I don't think he quite knows what he's doing there. Um, it doesn't sound, it doesn't quite sound like he's consulted with um, longtime hobby like executives or collectors themselves because he said something like this. Like, if, any, if if I were if I were him I would consult honestly with Nat Turner like that's I mean we'll we'll, we'll go on to you know uh, you know what fanatics vision is with what they're gonna do with cards with the, with their own cards in the future but honestly like he may be a competitor at, at some point but you should use his knowledge to your advantage and I, I feel like I feel like Nat is excited to see in a sense what with what fanatics is gonna do with newer cards. Um, and I I think Nat would be more than glad to help and to help cons, uh, provide like consulting services or whatever to um, to Michael Rubin. Um, I guess they they shouldn't put like a title on it because it might be it might be a conflict of interest. Um, with the head of a grading company consulting with the head of like a future head of a manufacturer, but. I mean, they should at least like trade ideas or something like they It's just, I, I think he needs to consult with other really big people in the hobby. I know he has, I've mentioned this before on previous shows that Josh Luber, the former CEO and founder of uh, StockX, is he's going to have a pretty big role of fanatics. Um, hopefully he has, uh, he, I mean, he's a collector through and through and, um, I've, I've talked to him. He's a really good dude, honestly. Um, I think he has the collector's best interest in mind. And hopefully I think, uh, hopefully Michael Rubin is a bit more hands-off in, in the, in the company with, um, especially with cards. So hopefully Josh Lieber has a bit more of a voice there. Um, and like, honest, honestly, as a collector myself, I don't like the idea of a one-stop shop. I don't know. I like collectors, like the idea of a thrill and a chase, um, and something that requires some level of work and expertise, and just kind of knowledge. Um, so we like—I don't know—collectors like to learn about things, and they like to, they like to like be aware through either word, like word of mouth, or whatever, just doing their own research. Um, so a one-stop shop would virtually like eliminate this with modern-day cards moving forward with fanatics, um, and it sounds like the rumors about. Um, like breakers card shops and other resellers being ousted uh it sounds pretty those rumors sound pretty legit at this point um i i would probably be concerned if i were one of those people that are looking to get modern modern product from fanatics in 2025 um, or whenever they release product um so i mean these are like the people like that are honestly areas where collectors fell in love with the hobby as kids like I used to love to go to card shops on weekends with with my buddy and his dad. He would he would take us, you know, like once a month. Um, and I, you know, I try to I try to pay pay uh, respect to like card shops close to my house. And just even if I don't like I my thing with going into a card shop today is even if there's nothing that I like product wise, single wise, wax wise, whatever, I just buy one touches or I just buy top loaders. I buy like just to at least like like just to I don't know pay some respect to, to the shop owner, even if I'm gonna spend like 10 bucks while I'm in there. It's just something that I've that I've kind of like, that I've done the last, um, you know, ever, ever since I got back into the hobby. Um, these individuals, maybe not as much as breakers, they stay in the hobby through thick and thin. Like these people, honestly, there are years where they lose money, um, or a long period of time where they lose money in bear markets, and they'll, they'll be, you. you want these people to stay around, and you don't necessarily want to cut them at the knees. All in all, um, it sounds like Fanatics is trying to be as cutthroat as possible um, in and you know with what they're trying to do with essentially monopolizing the card market to gain and, and appease investors. Um, it doesn't sound like they have the best interests of of collectors in mind. Um, but I think if we allow our voices to be heard. And, or, or big, bigger collects, bigger collectors than us with deeper pockets and more knowledge. If they, you know, if they're in Michael Rubin's ear, I think, I think he'll listen to them um, from the company as a whole, but it's just a matter of us actually doing it of, of actually being able to, to make ourselves heard.
0: I spoke to a card shop owner. Cause I just came back from Arizona. Thank you for asking me how it was, Jesse. It was a great time. <laughs> I appreciate that. There was a, it was nice of you to check in on me. And I spoke with a card owner, a uh, shop owner in Mesa and this was very much his concern, like we're hearing with breakers, like we're hearing with shop owners. I mean, as you you and I have talked about, guys that are breaking cards are making a living breaking cards right now, right? Breaking packs. So, and card shop owners, like this guy I talked to, I said, you know, how much business do you do in store? He goes, not even close to what I'm doing online. So these guys are concerned that they are going to essentially be phased out. And there's a chance for a guy like Michael Rubin, I mean... He's walking into this with a 28 to three Super Bowl lead right now. You can't fuck this up. Panini has been underwhelming in the eyes of many people. You know, baseball cards, football cards, whatever cards you're looking at, tops. People have felt underwhelmed for a while. There was too much meat left on the bone. They haven't commercialized. We talked about this. I don't see commercials or ads anywhere for cards for packs. All I hear most of the time is like bad publicity. Oh, Target had to take them out of the store. Oh, you know, people are racing to go buy this shit. They're going to put them, essentially, there is a chance that they commercialize this to a level where, again, maybe not Starbucks, but what if you start seeing them in every Target? What if you see them, like we've talked about, in every stadium, and suddenly you've got somebody, and this is what the card owner expressed to me because his big thing is, these people are going to show up without a with a lack of history of knowledge of everything that came before this you know scenario of fanatics being ushered in you're going to have as he said some 18 19 20 year old kid you know wearing a, a fucking supercuts you know haircut t-shirt place a, you know, a tire on, and he's gonna be walking around the store, showing you the packs, telling you what parallels are in it, explaining that. You're gonna go, well, hey, you know, 2017, there was this one type of card, and they're gonna go, I don't know what that is. I've never opened a pack in my life, and it's gonna be commercialized, and you're gonna lose <laughs> this this knowledge of the card shop owner and that experience, like you're talking about. And it seems legitimate. I mean, is this just fear porn, Jesse, or is there like a real scenario? where this gets commercialized to a level where it literally does push the shop owners out of the picture for good.
1: I'm, I'm not a big fear porn fan. I'm, I'm more of a card porn I fan. Love um, I love but, it. I love it. But, I mean, it's... Are you sure Starbucks isn't, like, within the range of... Out- Honest to God, are you sure it's not within the range of outcomes for, for fanatics?
0: I, I Here's... Okay, I'm only going to say this. I, I've been fucking shocked that there is a Starbucks standalone coffee shop. And then I turn to my right 60 feet away and there's a grocery store with a Starbucks in it. I don't think we're going to get to that level. But if we turn back the dial from 11 to like six and a half, I could see a fanatics, you know, I could see fanatics 25 miles apart. I mean, I don't think, or, you know, 15 miles apart. I don't think that's crazy at all. If it gets commercialized enough, I mean, this is already a multi-billion dollar industry. Why wouldn't they do it?
1: Totally agree. Um, I think uh, you and I, you, you've said before we started recording, you know, com- like commercializing. Dude, we could see billboards. We could see like, I've i have personally, I've only seen panini ads Um in Wells Fargo center at a Sixers game in the playoffs. That's it. That's, that's, that's the only, I swear to God, that's the only place I've seen a Panini at. I do not see Panini ads out and maybe the national, like, like a card show or something like I, I don't see any ads for Panini or tops. Um, the fact like there, there is stuff. There is, there are plenty of things that Panini and tops can do to, to keep improving. Um, Or just to improve in general. They haven't really tried. Like, they just... They've released, like, 10,000 parallels of the same thing without, like, getting super creative. I mean, it'd be interesting to get, like, some artistic minds in in the company to make some really cool-looking inserts. Maybe inspired from the 90s. I know some of them are, and some of them, they, they haven't done the best job. But I don't know. Like... They they kind of did this to themselves to the point where you could they could have they have more than enough money especially from twenty eighteen on to commercialize the shit out of their own brand and they haven't done that Um, I mean to their to their benefit they haven't really needed to because we're in we're in the market that we're in right now without without advertising Um, with with the card shops. It's it's gonna be tough. It's gonna be tough for them. Like, what's the incentive of them to acquire product, uh, if it's so readily available directly from Fanatics, and you know your average customer Joe Schmo is gonna be able to acquire that same product for the exact same price that the card shop is able to, unless if Fanatics acquires Tops, which carries over the the uh, business and the relationships that they've had with card dealers and and um, card shop owners around the country but if even if that happens whatever Michael Rubin just said goes out the window because he wants to he basically wants to make this a level playing field for for everyone for even even for uh, I guess not as much for resellers but just like anyone who has a genuine interest in the hobby he wants to make this a level playing field. So, yes, this is going to hurt card shop owners. This is going to hurt breakers. This is going to hurt card dealers. Um, it's, un- it's unfortunate because the, like, those are some of the people that, um, that helped us fall in love with cards, and they're always going to be in this.
0: Got it. Jersey Mike Subs. It's not a Starbucks. It's a Jersey Mike Subs. That makes more sense. It's, it's a little <laughs> less frequent. I, no, to your point. I think that let's go back and talk business. Uh, the other, the other issue on top of what you're talking about, it crushing the card shop owners potentially. Um, and as this guy in Mesa very emphatically expressed to me, he was he looked like Michael Chiklis. Do you know who that is? Bald I, head, I, the the shield. Is that the show? It Doesn't matter. I'm dating myself. Okay, all right. I would want to date right, me. I Did I already make that joke? <laughs> so he he was very. Very enthusiastic um, about the idea that he he works so hard to, uh, you know, to acquire all these distribution, you know, angles, conduits to get himself all of this priority stuff. And if one day Fanatics decides that, hey, card shops, you can stay open. We're going to distribute the product back to you guys. You can hold on to all the, you know, wax from every year prior to our inception But what we're going to do is we're going to put you, Card Shop in Mesa, and this guy that just opened up his card shop on an equal playing field. And that guy was like, fuck that. I just spent 15 years building up connections, and now Brad, dick on his nose, gets to open up a store just down the road, and we're on an equal playing field? It doesn't make sense. And that's what really frustrated him. And that's before we even start talking about that they want to grade cards as well.
1: You're... (sighs) The grading is not out of the question. I think they're legit about the grading. I don't know what they're going to grade. I don't know if they're going to say, oh, we could only grade Fanatics cards, um, like right off, like right out the gate. All right. So they they are going to be serious about grading. They will legitimize and create a, a grading company um, because they're already slabbing cards themselves. They're, like, there are certain players who have uh deals with fanatics believe it or not like um Luca before like this whole fanatics thing I don't think he he didn't he wasn't signing with Panini anymore even though Panini is the only officially like licensed basketball product he signs with fanatics so he'll sign stuff for fanatics um I think there uh, there are a couple other athletes that are in that boat too um so they already slab I I don't know if they do it themselves or upon like requests from the consumer, they already slab cards like that as authentic. So they all, they already have the resources to slab cards. Um, and they like, they've already gone through that process at least. It's just a matter of getting a team of graders. Um, probably the biggest team of graders we'll ever see, to be honest, um, because they have the money for it and they're going to grade their own stuff. And I, I don't see how this isn't necessarily a conflict of interest because, all right, what if I were to say in 2025 when the first officially licensed basketball product comes out with Fanatics, there is a the, one of the craziest LeBron James one of ones from whatever the fuck the product is called. Um, who's to say that they just don't grade it immediately? Like it's like it's made and then they don't even put it in the pack. And then they grade it immediately and then put it on the website for a hundred thousand dollars. Who's to say that that's, that doesn't happen. Like, and of course they're like, what incentive do they have to not grade that card high? Like, I don't know. Like I, I just, if they truly want to create their own grading company um, it's going to be tough to judge them fairly because they might not be fair themselves because very clearly with some of the comments that Michael Rubin made on the CNBC interview, like m- money is the bottom line. Like m- money isn't the problem for them to acquire the licenses, but it's it's certainly the bottom line um, like in the very end. So I don't know. I, I just, I don't really see, I, I don't know. I think, I think the whole grading thing is just a big conflict of interest. I don't know how they're going to be able to even go through it. Um, I'm sure they'll find a way, but I don't know. Personally, like, and and even if they go outside of grading fanatics cards, like, it's just gonna be it's gonna be weird seeing like absolute grail cards that were broken out of their BGS slabs or whatever slab and then have it graded in a, in a fanatics slab. And I'm talking pre pre fanatics cards, like like I I don't know like a top Crumb gold refractor LeBron James rookie, like just stuff like that. It's gonna be weird to see those cards in a fanatics slab.
0: Yeah, it's I mean. Jesse, I I don't know what to say. This is an overwhelming uh, level of fear porn as I referred to it earlier. I just it it, none of it feels good. I understand um, that there's a lot of like questions because even if it goes the direction of them sharing their product with, you know, shop owners, again, you're going to have the shop owners that have been at this forever. They're going to feel like they're being undercut. By the guy around the corner and is somebody going to want to come in their store if they can just go to the Jersey Mike subs shop store down the road you know who knows probably not but in the end it's probably not good for them. But I just got a text message from Brad dick on his nose and he asked us to switch subjects so Jesse there's (laughs) Brad that guy he's always bothering me mid show. Um, so. You and I have been talking for a little while um, on this show about using moments, documentaries, uh, you know, appearances on television, whatever it is, as an opportunity to purchase and prepare and sell cards based on a moment of hype. Hall of Fame is something that we typically talk about from time to time. But we wanted to talk about some of the wide receivers that people should be looking out for come the next Hall of Fame class, and there seems to be some potential debate about who's going to get in, and some odd reasons why some players haven't gotten in yet.
1: So I took a look at a resource, very a free resource. Uh, we've mentioned it on a couple of shows in the past. Um, I use this religiously just to get just to get a temperature on if if a player's in the if a player has retired for has been retired for at least a couple of years, how they're looking in comparison to their peers um, who are either in, in or not in the hall of fame and maybe some current players just to see their, their trajectory on how they're looking when their career is all said and done, wh- where they're going to be on, on, you know, the hall of fame watch list. So it's the pro football reference uh, hall of fame monitor list. Um, and, you know, uh, for this, just for the purpose of this segment, we're sticking with wide receivers, and four wide receivers that I saw who are eligible in twenty twenty two. Some have been eligible for years, and others are first year eligible in twenty twenty two. They rank very highly. They're all like top twenty names on the Hall of Fame monitor list. So the Hall of Fame monitor list is basically, I mean, it, it weighs it weighs a bunch of different uh, factors, like I, besides like just uh, counting stats. Um, all pro first team, uh, Pro Bowl appearances, years as a starter, um, just all like, you know, all kinds of stuff. I think for wide receivers, they rightfully so. I don't think they, uh, you know, uh, measure Super Bowls or Super Bowl appearances or anything because that's it's not that's a, more of a quarterback stat than, than anything else. Um, but four names that were very much higher on the list than I thought were Reggie Wayne, Torrey Holt, a name that we've mentioned on a previous show. Steve Smith and Andre Johnson. Um, Reggie Wayne is number 11, believe it or not, on the list. So if we if we take this list and extrapolate, like let's say you know this list, this list measures the best wide receivers of all time. So this list is like the objective way of measuring how good a wide receiver was over the course of his career or in the scheme of NFL history, Reggie Wayne's number 11 um his hall of fame monitor points uh or whatever tracker whatever um he's at 107.14 so they they value it on a point system um which is number 11 on the list there are 10 players ahead of him 10 wide receivers ahead of him on the list um every single one is in the hall of fame except for Larry Fitzgerald because he's not eligible yet and he just pseudo retired um interestingly enough teammate uh, Colts Colts teammate and Colts great Marvin Harrison was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2016. The next, the second name is Torrey Holt. Uh, his Hall of Fame monitor point uh, point level is at 105.22. He's the very next one on the list, number 12. Um, the, the thing with him is he's been eligible since 2014, and teammate Isaac Bruce was ju- was just inducted this past year. Before I go into the into the next two players. Um, and in their prospects of getting into the Hall of Fame. What is I just said one thing that's in con, that Reggie Wayne and Tori Holt have in common.
0: Yeah, that that each of them have a teammate that already got into the Hall of Fame.
1: Exactly. For whatever reason, this is legit. I had no idea until I think it was like a Bleacher Report article and it it was like well sourced from active Hall of Fame voters themselves. Um that the Hall discounts uh like Player career performance if their uh, teammate within the same position group was already inducted into the Hall of Fame. So basically, the fact the fact that Marvin Harrison was already inducted into the Hall of Fame hurts Reggie Wayne's chances of getting to the Hall of Fame. The fact that Isaac Bruce was inducted in 2021 hurts somehow hurts Tory Holt's chances of getting to the Hall of Fame. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think of that whole idea that Having another another player within the same skill position that you played in hurts your chances into get into getting to the Hall of Fame when your numbers are at the same level, slightly worse or or even better than 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 their teammate.
0: I mean, it doesn't make much sense because you could argue that the success in this case of say Isaac Bruce was because of Torrey Holt in a lot of regards that they had to you know they had to show respect to Torrey Holt, which opened up things on the other side and the other side with Torrey Holt in particular. His production on the amount of games he actually played is shocking by comparison to most guys on this list. I mean, Torrey Holt played 173 games and was over 13,000 receiving yards. I mean, his, his explosiveness essentially trumps most of the guys on this board. I mean, look at this. He was essentially 1,400 yards less than Tim Brown in, what, 80 games? Is my math right on that? Looks like he's about... Yeah, I mean, roughly 1,400 less yards than Tim Brown, and he played almost 80 less games.
1: I mean, that's a fact. 13,000 receiving yards is nothing to sneeze at either because the average Hall of Fame wide receiver uh, had 11,638 career receiving yards. Right. I I don't even...
0: who, Who got there fast? Like, that is... So to me, you can make the case in some other regards. Some of these teams that have had a prolific combination of wide receivers, you might be able to have the conversation. But the fact that Bruce got in and Holt didn't is kind of surprising because Holt's production is ridiculous.
1: It kills Bruce's. I don't. I. I. I don't know if. Um. Wait, let me see. They retired the same year too. They both retired in two thousand nine. Um. Isaac Bruce spent. Uh. He had a. If anything, he spent a longer amount of time in the league. I understand, like, Isaac Bruce, he was a beast uh, himself. He had over 15,000 receiving yards, but he played from 1994 to 2009. Um, It seems like he was, like, pretty healthy for a majority of his career. Um, So he had basically five more seasons and, like you said, only only accrued – yeah, like a little less than two thousand more receiving yards over the over the course of five years. That's like I mean, when, when you put it that way, it's really not as impressive as it sounds. Um, or as fifteen thousand receiving yards looks. It's I don't know if they were just paying respect to Isaac Bruce just because he played a little bit longer. Um, maybe that's why he got in before Tory Hole. But I don't know. Like I, I wouldn't say either player was super flashy, but Torrey Holt was like really he was so unsexy in even in fantasy, even though he was like he was he was a wide receiver one throughout his prime. Like it was it just it wasn't whenever you drafted him in fantasy football, when I when I played back then, um, like he was a surefire pick. He never felt super great about it. It's not a very sexy pick, but you always knew you were gonna get twelve hundred receiving yards and six touchdowns every year, no matter what. Um it's just I don't. Yeah, personally, I don't. I don't really understand why Isaac Bruce got in before Tori Holt, and they they were um they were both eligible starting the same year because they both retired in two thousand nine, and you have to be retired for five years to be eligible. So they were both eligible starting in twenty fourteen. Uh, so Torrey Holt's. I mean, they've both waited a while, but Tori, this this is like completely unjust for Tori Holt.
0: So what is so what's the play here? So we you you have other names on this list, but what's essentially the play with these names?
1: Um, I personally think, I just think that they're going to get in. It's a matter of time. Like uh, with Reggie Wayne, especially if I hear something that um, actual people who have power... Like actual power in the voting process when they say stuff like this so, oh his teammate got in so yeah we're going to discount this we're, we're probably it's they're going to be essentially cans that are going to be kicked down the road for a little bit until we feel like okay well there's really not we don't you know we have a lack of uh, first ballot hall of famers this year so let's let's just put these guys in um i'm not sure if uh reggie wayne or tory holt or are going to be inducted this year. If anything, I probably see Wayne getting inducted first because it's been like five years, five, six years since Marvin Harrison was inducted. Um, so that's kind of like Harrison's kind of old news. And, you know, just to bring in another like Colts great, they might induct Wayne probably before um, before Tory Holt. I don't know if our listeners agree or disagree with that. It's just how I, I personally see it. Um, so Holt might be like a, he might be a little bit of a longer play even though I don't think that's that's right. Um, so he might be like a two-year play, something like that. So you'll probably have to hold him for a little bit. or there. I'm sure there will be plenty of buying opportunities down, down the line. So if I were to go, but if I were to choose between one of these guys, I'd probably go Reggie Wayne first. Um, but I don't know. I just thought it was interesting how actual Hall of Fame voters said that Oh, because their their teammate who is also wide receiver because they're inducted. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna wait to induct these guys. I just I don't know, personally I thought that was bullshit. Um, and then the other two guys I mentioned were uh Steve Smith and Andre Johnson. So uh they're a little less they're a little lower on the totem pole on, in terms of the Hall of Fame monitor list. Uh Steve's uh Steve Smith is number seventeen on the list. He has ninety seven point nine one hall. Hall of Fame monitor points. Um, he's first. What's interesting about him is he's first year eligible. And Andre Johnson is number twenty on the list uh, at ninety one point nine one Hall of Fame monitor points, and he's also first year eligible. Out of these two, I can see. I see Steve Smith as being more. He has a. a he's. It's more plausible to see him being a first year uh, ballot, first ballot Hall of Famer than Andre Johnson, in my opinion. And it with me, pers- I think it has to do more with personality than anything else. I think, like, if you compare these guys side by side, obviously they had a very different playing style. Um, but Steve Smith was just more... He was more outspoken. He was... Like, he he's a big fan favorite. Like, it, people love or hate Steve Smith, honestly. I don't think he's the best uh, color commentator or the best analyst on NFL Network, truth be told. But um, I think... I think people love and, like, respect him and remember him fondly when he played. Um, so, if anything, I think th- that has more weight on getting into the Hall of Fame than people think or than or than people might openly discuss. Like, there was a reason why we had to wait for Terrell Owens to be inducted. He was also very outspoken, but he was super controversial throughout his career and after his career. Um, so like it was a legitimate debate every year between the voters if if they should actually let this guy in the hall of fame at all um so whereas I think with Steve, it's a bit more positive um he was kind of like he was always a trash talker but he was a bit more like I don't know he was he seemed a bit more lovable i it, I, I don't know it's hard to describe um so I, I can see Steve Smith having a better shot uh, at getting, in on on his, on his first try than Andre Johnson Andre Johnson I freaking loved Andre Johnson throughout his career like but the problem with him and I personally like this I don't know I I like when players like have their head on straight and are kind of kind of you know a little boring uh, during interviews or they don't really say much um because I'm I'm probably I if I were an athlete if I'd be in Andre Johnson shoes I wouldn't do anything different than what he did I like that just fits with my personality um like Andre Johnson is is essentially the Kawhi Leonard of wide receivers. Like he's just, he just kind of goes in there, gets his, gets his job done, gets his thousand plus receiving yards and like five touchdowns. Like he wasn't a big touchdown score, but um, he just kind of did there. He, he, he went in there, got, got his job done, maybe kicked Cortland Finnegan's ass once. And then maybe again in the parking lot. Um, but uh I don't know. I like I remember both of these guys very very fondly and you know there's you guys might be wondering why we're talking about the Hall of Fame at all. Um it, in general with with wide receivers well th- we're going to find out 4 months from now who's getting inducted. So this isn't if if you guys want to if you have different opinions than than I do about these four players and you want to make a play, then you have a 4 month window basically with whatever you want to do with any of these guys. My like case study or comparison, basically my comp in this case is what we saw with Calvin Johnson in 2021. So on February 6th, keep this date in mind, February 6, 2021, Calvin Johnson, uh, received his invitation to be inducted into the 2021 NFL hall of fame class. So I took a look at his, uh, with card ladders data, um, I took a look at both his 2007 Topps Chrome Refractor PSA 10 and his uh, Topps Chrome Base PSA 10, uh, both relatively low pop low pop cards. His 07 Topps Chrome Refractor PSA 10 sold on June, 20, June 25th, 2020 for $300. Um, it's a pretty low pop card. It Even when I was looking at the sales history, I didn't really see many sales between June of 2020 and... And February of 2021, it's not, the card didn't really come up for sale very often, but when it did, it would creep up, up and up and up. I don't know if people were speculating on maybe he's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer, which I fully believed. And that's why I was trying to scoop him up last, last season. Um, But uh, whenever, yeah, like I said, whenever, whenever it would sell between June of 2020 and February of 2021, it would constantly trend up in a very like healthy linear Fashion, it, it trended up. On February 6th, the day that he got his invitation to be inducted, that card went from, what did I say, $300 in June of 2020? It was probably around like, you know, the $600, $700 range at, at this point in February. That same day, it sold for $1,225. So you're talking about over a span of eight months. Let's say you bought that card in June, you want to sell it in February, the day that he's inducted. That's over a nine hundred dollar profit right there, and it, that's not even when it peaked. People are people were still buying the news after after he was inducted. They were the his prices kept going up up until the the in the Hall of Fame induction ceremony itself. The card peaked at fifteen hundred dollars in May, and then even after that, it still stayed above twelve hundred dollars when when the induction ceremony actually took place. So if we look at somebody like Calvin Johnson as like a, as a case study. This is kind of I'm not saying we're going to forex our money in 4 months, but there is money to be made here. The people they're not like these guys, these four names that I mentioned, they're not relevant until they are. Um and a Hall of Fame induction would certainly do something like that. Um so I took a look at some, you know, fairly viable options for people with whatever pockets um however deep pockets uh they'd be willing to spend on any of these guys um reggie wayne uh, 2001 wasn't like the best year for for cards per se you pretty much had like tops chrome tops finest maybe bowman chrome and that was it um the probably the most readily available reggie wayne card i saw was his uh 2001 tops finest psa 10 it's actually numbered out of 100 um it has a pop of 157 it's this card doesn't pop up super often, but it's fairly inexpensive. It sold, it last sold in July for two hundred and thirty dollars. So you know, honestly, anywhere between like a two hundred to two hundred fifty dollar range would be pretty doable. I think you'd be making good money, if especially if he were to be inducted in, in uh, or invited in in February. Um, for somebody like Tori Holt, uh, his nineteen ninety nine Topps Chrome Refractor rookie PSA ten. Has a very low pop, pop of thirty five, um, and it's going to be tough to find a, a raw card right now that's been around since nineteen ninety nine that's going to grade a PSA ten. So I don't see this pop count going up very much over the next couple of years. Um, the last sale I couldn't even I couldn't find this on CardLadder. I couldn't find the sale history on Market Movers from Sports Card Investor. I had to look up um, past auctions from the PSA app to look this one up. It hasn't sold through auction on eBay since July of 2020. These cards don't come up very often. And even back then, it sold for just short of $900. Um, There is one currently available on eBay for $1,100 or best offer, and I don't even think that's that absurd of a price given how the football card market looked in July of 2020 compared to how it looks right now. For somebody like Steve Smith, uh, we have his 2001 Topps Chrome rookie refractor. Uh, this one, you you can't be super picky on grade. You can't just necessarily go for the PSA 10, just because they don't come up very often. Um, when I was going through the eBay sale, eBay sales history, i I found the last BGS 95 sale happened on August 22nd, 2021, so about two months ago for 413. dollars um, so if you were to be looking at the BGS nine five, I feel like, and, and I think that was a min gem as well. So that's kind of closer to a PSA nine than it is a PSA 10. Um, if you can find a PSA nine around like the $300 range or a PSA 10 around the eight fifty to $900 range, I think that'd be a pretty good play. There's a couple of PSA nines that are up on sale now, uh, up for sale now on eBay, but they're, they're overpriced. They're like 800 bucks. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go after them. So if you, you know, magically see like a PSA 10 at auction, I'd, I'd be, you know, I'd save that search right now if you'd be looking to get in on Steve Smith. And then the last player, Andre Johnson. Um, this was probably one of the more interesting cards. Uh, if for any of you who have a MySlabs account, first of all, create one um, because MySlabs is awesome. Um, they're, uh they one of the only Andre Johnson cards that they have on their platform is the 2003 Topps Chrome Gold X fractor PSA nine, very nicely numbered, sixty nine out of one hundred and one. um (laughs) with well uh, done yeah with uh thank you it's a pop nine pop nine psa nine no tens exist and i don't even think any bgs nine fives exist so the the highest grade of this card is a psa nine um it's available in my slabs for 1300 dollars. i couldn't finding comps on this card is super tough um i saw a raw that sold in july for a little over 150 bucks uh, again, these cards have been around for a while, so the odds of having a card gem uh, like this are slim to none, in my opinion, even if it's sealed, even if it's like factory sealed. Um, and the last sale for PSA 9 that I could find f- via auction was also on PSA's app, and it went for $200 in April of 2020. So the market... But again, that was April twenty twenty. The market in April twenty twenty is very different from the market in October of twenty twenty one. It would be interesting to see if you can somehow get in touch with the, or find out the MySlab seller's um, Instagram account or something, and maybe message him privately if you're able to. Uh, because I think, you know, that might be a thirteen hundred dollar card now. But if he's, if you know, if I'm wrong, if he's inducted in February. Where it's announced that he's going to be inducted, uh, that that's a two thousand dollar card right there, in my opinion. I I don't think that's there's that's really a uh, it, that's that's certainly within the realm of possibility. So I think there is money to be made even with how this card is priced right now. Who the hell doesn't want a gold X fractor 2? That card is sweet as hell. Um, yeah, or, or some early like early two thousand tops Chrome golds. They're freaking nice ass cards. So. Um, Just wanted to give you guys a couple of options in case if uh, in case if you were to dive deep into any of these guys moving forward.
0: Jesse, you just broke down a ton of reasons why these four guys plus options of cards are great to go after right now. You know, obviously, you've acknowledged the fact that there may be a weight on one of these guys who knows if they get in at this time. But these are all guys that we believe are going to be Hall of Famers in the end. So go check out some of the stuff that Jesse just laid out for you if you want to take a swing at some of these Hall of Famers. If you agree or disagree, hit Jesse up on Twitter at planet underscore fatness. Let him know where he got it right, where he got it wrong. Listen, guys, lastly, we have a quick shout out, of course, our show sponsor, Underdog Fantasy. Download the Underdog app today and use the promo code Underworld. You will get $25 bonus cash for new players who deposit. Jesse, next week... It's going to be quarterback heavy because we've got some conversation to have about Kyler Murray. We had some patrons over at patreon.com forward slash I'm outraged that asked the question, why is Kyler Murray's card market not taking off like Josh Allen's had? Seems to be part of the conversation here. Whether we agree or disagree, I think they're going to get their answer next week. So, guys, please check back for that, and we will see you all next week on Clear the Cash.